Well, good morning and welcome to Scott's Hill. So glad that all of you are here. Those of you who are watching us online, we're glad that you're able to join us today. Maybe you're watching us by Facebook or maybe on our website. We're so thankful that you're able to connect with us as we are going through a time of studying God's Word together. You heard an announcement a couple of minutes ago about our 40th anniversary that's going to be celebrated on October the 20th. Our 40th anniversary actually occurred on June the 10th. But we didn't want to try to do a big celebration outside in the middle of all this this heat of the summer. So we want to wait until now where it's much cooler, right? (laughs) Yeah, it is hot. Anybody tired of it being hot? Yes, yes. My wife and I are going to take a couple of days off this week. We're going up to the Shenandoah National Forest. We love to hike. And we were going to go hiking where it's cool. It's going to be 90 degrees there this week. Uh, So, so much for our planning. But listen, we want you to be at our 20th, uh, 20th, 40th anniversary on October the 20th. And this is not just one of those services where you come and we do some music and a couple of testimonies and we eat dinner on the ground and you go. No, this is a great time of celebration. Most of us probably won't be around here maybe at our 50th anniversary. I'm just thinking about how old I'll be and um, I may not be here, but this is the opportunity at 40th anniversary for us to celebrate. We're going to have a great time together as we worship together, as we look at the beginning years, the building years, and the blessing years of what God has done at Scotts Hill. Then we're going to eat together, and we are going to have blow-ups. We're going to have games. It's going to be like a carnival festive atmosphere. And we don't want you to just eat and go home. We want you to come and enjoy a great afternoon of just celebrating together and being together. So that's our image, that's the picture, that's the vision of what we have for October the 20th. It doesn't matter if you've been a a charter member here, covenant member here, or if you're a regular attender, we want everybody here so we can celebrate together. So go online, get those tickets, Uh, let's have a wonderful time of just enjoying God's great work of transforming people, amen? So I encourage you to be a part of that. Several years ago, I read a story that, that came back to me this week as I was considering it. it was an, it's an old Navajo tale that these Navajo Indians used to share with their children. Now you say, boy, you're pulling up some Indian stories recently. Well, I am part Indian. My great-great-grandmother was full-blooded Choctaw Indian, and so I have some Indian in me. That's why I cannot grow a beard I have an Indian beard, Apache here, Apache there. And so that so I'm gonna tell some Indian stories when I get an opportunity. Um but anyway, th- this story goes like this: this little Navajo kid is walking through these plains area and he finds an eagle's egg. I mean a big old eagle's egg. It had fallen out of the nest some way, and miraculously it had survived it. And he picks up this egg and he's thinking, what am I going to do with this thing? And so as he's walking along, he sees a prairie hen running away from a nest. He said, I'll put it in her nest. So he went over there and he put that big eagle egg right in the middle of all those little tiny prairie hen eggs. And he thought, well, maybe she won't notice the difference. And being dumb like a prairie hen, she didn't notice the difference. She went on there and she just sat on those eggs. She sat on that eagle's egg. She sat on the prairie hen eggs. And in due time, they all hatched. And lo and behold, amidst all of those prairie hens was this big, clumsy eagle. And this eagle is thinking he is a prairie hen. 
It's all he knows. And so as he is growing up, he's learning everything about what a prairie hen does. He learns to scratch the ground like a prairie hen. He learns to eat the little bugs like a prairie hen. He's dragging his big old massive feathers around like the prairie hens did, wearing his feathers out. And as he's growing up and he's hanging out with all of these other prairie hens, one day they're going across the prairie and all of a sudden this eagle just flies over. This majestic bird. And as this bird is flying over, they all look up. And all the little prairie hens are going, wow, look at that. And the eagle looks up and says, what is that? Says an eagle. Man, that is power. Man, that is strength. Man, that is majesty. And that eagle looks up and wonder. He says, I wonder. And one of the prairie hens says, stop your wondering, man. You're a prairie hen. You're not an eagle. You'll never be like that, so just be satisfied with the things of the dirt. And the eagle put his head down, and he lived with the prairie hens, and he died a prairie hen. Y'all look so sad. It's just a story. (laughs) But the truth of the story was this. That eagle never lived to his potential. He was meant to soar, and he spends his life in the dirt of the earth. Now, what a wonderful picture of what Peter has been painting for us in 2 Peter. He's saying to us that we have everything in Christ for life and godliness, that God has created us something for much greater than that of just scratching the dirt of the earth and being satisfied with the trinkets that the world has to offer. You have everything you need as a child of God. And God has raised us up for the purpose of soaring in his majesty and soaring in his glory and soaring in his power. And that's what Peter is trying to capture as we've been going through this series called Everything. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1. And we've been camping out on verses 5 through 7. And as we've been looking at this series, one of the things we want to see is the potential that we have in Christ. And it's so much greater than what the world has to offer us. So far, Peter has told us that we have everything we need, and it's found in a person. That is Jesus. And everything we need is formed by God's power, by his divine power. He has given us everything for life and godliness. And everything we need is secured in his promises, his great and his precious promises. Paul later tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says that in Jesus, every promise is yes and what? Amen. They're all secure. And then we come to verse 4, and Peter makes this transition. He says, listen, you've got everything you need. It's in Jesus. It's in the power of God. It's in the promises of God's word. However... You need to supplement your faith with one of seven qualities. And then he begins to tell us what these qualities are. And when he says supplement your faith, that word in the Greek supplement means generously supply. We are to generously supply to the faith that God has given us in Christ these qualities that will make us effective and make us fruitful and make us productive in our Christian life. And he tells us what these seven qualities are. 
For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the first two of those. And the quality number one was this, that we are to generously supply moral excellence. We are to be people of moral excellence in Christ. Amen? We are to walk with a moral excellence. That means we are to walk with a, more, a, a, a godly uh, courage, godly character, and godly conviction. And that's what we looked at the first week. Second week, we saw that we are to generously supply knowledge. That word knowledge means a growing knowledge of divine truth that is applied daily. And last week, what we did was we talked about that knowledge is God's word. And how do we get a grip on God's word? And last week, we showed you this little hand. And we reminded you six ways of getting a grip on the word of God. We hear the word, we read the word, we study the word, we memorize the word, we meditate on the word, and we apply the word. And then I challenged you last week to memorize Psalm 1. Psalm 1. I had a little, little kid, he must have been six years old, come up to me in the last service, at the end of the service. He said, Pastor Phil, I memorized Psalm 1. And he quoted it for me. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to say it out loud. If you quoted it, and if you learned it, I want you to quote it. doesn't matter what version you quoted it from. Maybe you learned from the ESV, New American Standard. Maybe the NIV, the Nearly Inspired Version. I don't care what version you... That went right over some of your heads, okay. Whatever version, maybe a compilation of your version and, and another version... But I want to say it out loud. If you did not memorize it, just say watermelon the whole time. Nobody will ever know that you didn't know it, okay? So here's what we want to do. Let's say it together. I'll lead the way. I'll start, and you join with me. And, and don't, don't fizzle out on me, okay? Stay all the way through. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does prospers, but the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous." For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of sinners will what? Good, y'all got that last word. That's awesome. Here's what I want to challenge you to do next week. You ready? I want you to memorize John 11.35. I won't tell you what it is. John 11.35. Okay, he already knows it. Thank you. It's two words, Jesus wept. Okay, I was going to have you look it up. All right, you all got it. So now we're going to look at quality number three and four today. We're going to combine the two. And at the end of this message, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. Okay? So qualities three and four, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. We're going to move through these quickly. And the reason we're going to look at qualities three and four is they are companion qualities. They go together, and they are the least favorite qualities for all believers. When Peter gives these qualities, he's not saying, hey, you get to pick and choose which ones you like and which ones you don't like. Because these build on each other. And they are a natural result of the previous one. And what does he do? He gives us quality three and quality four. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at each of these qualities. We're going to find out what they are, why we need to pursue them, 
and how do we do it successfully as believers, okay? So quality number three, we are to generously supply self-control. Self-control. How many of you absolutely just love self-control? Not many of you. Some of you are trying to control yourself. No, no. You just don't, you don't like it. We live in a culture that doesn't teach self-control, don't we? We live in a culture that says it's all about your indulgence. You deserve it. Do what you want shall be the hilt of the law. That is a scripture from the Satanic Bible. And it also is the motto of our culture today. Do what you want shall be the hilt of the law. I mean, think about it. We're the richest nation in the world, yet the average home in America is in more debt than they've ever been in the history of our country. We have the greatest nutrition in the world, yet America is the most overweight and out-of-shape nation in the world. We have the greatest resources for all kinds of health, yet we are the most addicted society in the world. I mean, we can look at a lot of stats, and all the stats tell us we're not a people of self-control. So what is self-control? What does it mean? What does the word mean? When you look at the word in the Greek, the word self-control literally means this, to hold oneself in. Let me put it another way. It's to get a grip on your life. Now, last week, Peter said, get a grip on the word of God. We also need to get a grip on our life. And the word self-control rings with self-discipline. It rings with a rigorous attempt to be able to control my life. When the Apostle Paul speaks about it, he always talks about it in athletic terms. I believe Paul loved athletics. We always see him using athletics as a metaphor of the Christian life. Here's what he writes. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, do you not know that that in a race all runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. That they're a person of self-control. Consider an athlete who's training for any kind of games or event. They, They put themselves on a rigorous diet. They put themselves on rigorous schedules. They make sure that they control all of the appetites of their life. Now, the world calls self-control willpower. If you have a certain amount of willpower, you can do it. But this is not willpower. Self-control for the believer can be defined in this term. It is submission to the control of the indwelling Christ with our passions And our pleasures. When you think of self control, that's really it. It's submitting everything in my life to the Lordship of Jesus with respect to my passions and my pleasures. For every child of God, that is the issue of self control, is to allow the Lord to have the Lordship, allow Jesus to be the King of the things that drive me. In the things that I like. Now there's nothing wrong with passion. God gives us passion. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. In his goodness he gives us pleasure. But all of my passions and all of my pleasures. Must be to the glory of the Lord Jesus. My ambitions are to be for his glory. My speech is to be for his glory. 
My appetites are to be for his glory. All of these things are for the purpose of his glory and my personal holiness. So as I submit all of these things, that is what discipline is, self-control is. It's taking all of your passions, all of your desires, and allowing Jesus to be the Lord over them. That is self-control for the believer. Now, why do we need it? Why do we need self-control? Here's why we need self-control. We need self-control because we live in the flesh. We live in a broken, fallen body. And because we live in the flesh, our flesh constantly wants to rise up and commit mutiny for the child of God. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just kind of a summary of the list. And what he's saying is this, listen, your sinful nature wants its way. Your sinful nature wants to be out of control. Your sinful nature wants to control everything of your life. Now, here's what we need to understand as believers. When I come to faith in Christ, I've been forgiven of my sin. I've been forgiven of the penalty of sin. But the problem is the presence of sin is still with me. I still have a sinful nature. Now, the Holy Spirit has taken up residency within me. But that nature of sin still resides in me. Sin is like a cancer. All of its um, tentacles begin to spread through all of the aspects of your faculties. The old term is this. Every person apart from Christ is totally depraved. You're totally depraved apart from Christ. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean a person can only be as bad as they can ever be? No. What total depravity means this, that sin has totally infected every aspect of your human faculties. It impacts your emotions. It impacts your will. It impacts your passions. It impacts your desires. It impacts your thinking. And it metastasizes to every area of the body. But when Jesus comes into your life and the Holy Spirit takes up residency, that is eradicated. The grip of sin is no longer in all those areas, but it is still there underneath. And it is always wanting to rise up. And every single day, and I've said this many times, every single day for the child of God, it is civil war in you. Because in you is the Spirit of God who wants to make you like Christ. In you is that sinful nature that wants its own way. And the two are constantly at war with each other. And when I practice self-control and I submit everything to the lordship of Christ, it takes over the flesh. But every single day, somebody's will is going to live and somebody's will is going to die. You either live according to your flesh or you will live according to the Spirit of God, and self-control is the key. Where you come to the point where you submit everything of the old man and the old woman to Jesus. How can you do that successfully? Here's the great news. Child of God, this is a great news. It's a sobering news. It's a convicting news. Here it is. You and I have all we need through the fruit of the Spirit 
to walk in self-control. The Apostle Paul says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. That's our relationship with the Father. Patience, kindness, goodness. That's our relationship with other people. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's our relationship with ourselves. Listen carefully. Self-control is a supernatural gift given to every child of God by the Spirit of God so that you might live a successful life in submitting to Christ. Every child of God has the Holy Spirit within them, and he has the power to overcome the desires of the flesh, and no Christian, listen carefully, no Christian ever has the excuse to say, oh, you just don't understand. My willpower is not strong enough. You, you just don't understand. I mean, that temptation is too tough. You just don't understand. It's really hard for me to say no to that. The difference between self-control for the Christian and willpower for the non-believer is that willpower is up to that person in all of their energy to exert enough energy to overcome temptations. They may be successful, but they may not. But for the child of God, self-control is a supernatural gift that the Holy Spirit has given to each one of us. I want to tell you, no Christian, no Christian ever has an excuse in saying, I just can't overcome that. Because the Spirit of God who lives in you is the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and that has given you life and that will sustain you and enable you. Now, some people are dealing with addictions that are long. And they're the consequences of poor choices in their lives. But the Holy Spirit is absolutely capable in you for providing recovery and freedom. Now, there are a lot of things we could talk about that we're not getting into with that. But the truth is this. Self-control is given to you to implement and to walk in. And as you do that, you have everything you need. And you can have freedom. Self-control is a willful choice every single day of my life. And every morning that I wake up, I have to make a commitment to give my speech to Jesus. Every day I have to make a commitment to give my passions to Jesus. Every day I have to make a commitment to give my ambitions to Jesus. Every day is a fresh day of sending up the flag and surrendering to him. That is self-control. And now you know why many believers don't like it. Because it's death every day. So this quality of self-control is attainable in the person of the Spirit of God. Let's look at the second quality. We are to generously support, or the fourth quality, I should say. We are to generously supply endurance. Endurance. Now, why did I say they were companions? They go together. And here's how they fit. Listen, while self-control has its focus on my passions and my pleasures, endurance has its focus on my problems and my pressures. That's where they go together. But endurance means to bear up under. Endurance means to get to that place where I can have steadfastness in a difficult time. 
Endurance has to do with those unwelcome times of suffering and pain and struggle in my life. And endurance is this supernatural ability, again, by the Spirit of God, to bear up under difficult times. Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. I don't think he meant that your trouble is going to be your vacation's just not going to go the way, the way you planned it. Or maybe your stocks and stuff are not going to do as well in this volatile market of everything going up and down. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about persecution. He's talking about real life problems. He's talking about real issues of struggle. He's talking about all of these difficulties that you and I face. That we have endurance to bear up under those. One Greek philosopher, Cicero, put it this way. He says, endurance is the voluntary and daily suffering of hard and difficult things for the sake of honor and usefulness. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 5, says this to us. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Well, you don't hear much about that, do you? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You and I, through times of suffering, God uses that to build in us something he never would have accomplished outside of that struggle. It's during those struggles. And he does that, and he gives us the endurance for that. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. A couple of things the writer tells us about endurance here. First of all, our race is not a sprint. You're not running a 40-yard dash. You're not running a 100-yard dash. You're not running a 220, a 440, or 880. You're not running a two-mile. You're running a marathon. And as a child of God, it is a run that is the rest of your life. And if we're going to run a race that's long, we need endurance to bear up under it. Now, I want to tell you, there are a lot of people in the church who have started strong, but they've dropped out. And you know people in your mind right now of what I'm talking about. People who come in the life of the church, they're very excited. They're running on emotion and adrenaline. Then all of a sudden, some difficulties come in their lives, and you see them no more. They're never in the life of the church. They don't talk about the things of God. They don't talk about the things of Christ. Now they're living a life as though they have never known Christ. And you scratch your head and say, I wonder what happened. And then there are people who just drop out altogether. And then there are people who come to the end of their life, and they may have started one way, but they finish a different way. Listen carefully. One of the greatest testimonies of being a child of God is enduring to the end. That's one of the greatest testimonies. That's why the Apostle Paul keeps speaking of the elect enduring to the end. It is a lifelong commitment where I bear up under difficulties and struggles and pain. And when I walk with that kind of endurance, the greatest joy that I could give to people and I can bring to my Savior is to finish the race well. Run to the end. 
Now, endurance is not only about bearing up under, but it's looking forward to something. Every runner that runs agonizes through the race for the purpose of winning the prize. The Apostle Paul writes of this most beautifully, better than anybody I can imagine. He says in Philippians 3.12, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm pressing on. I'm moving on. I'm not going to quit. That upward call is the call that God has placed in my life. And I want to pursue and please the heart of my Father that one day when I stand before him, his words to me are, well done. Well done. You've run hard. You've finished that race. And nobody suffered as much as Paul as a minister of the gospel in prison and beaten and all of the things that he went through. And in 2 Corinthians, here's what he says about it in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul Bared up under to the end. Paul was a man who loved athletics. I'm convinced of that. He's always talking about some athletic event as a metaphor of the Christian life. And this all has a name. He says, I don't box the air aimlessly. I'm, 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 I'm disciplined in this. If Paul were here today, I'm convinced that he would love football. I really do. I believe he'd love professional football. And I believe there's only one team he would ever pull for. I mean, right? Come on. He's always pulled for the saints. But he bore up under all of these things. What's the motivation for you and me? What's the motivation for you and me to walk a self-controlled life? What's the motivation for you and me to endure? The motivation is this, the Lord Jesus. Listen carefully, child of God. Jesus never asked you to do anything that he hasn't already done. He says to walk in self-control. No one had greater self-control than did Jesus Christ. Completely submissive to the Father, he takes on humanity and he comes to this broken earth to walk the dust of this planet with us. He only did what the Father said. He only said what he heard the Father saying. He only did what he saw the Father doing. As he stood before Pilate, he's the most powerful person on the planet. And what did he do? He walked in self-control. When Jesus was hanging on a cross, do you realize he could have called the angels of heaven and every single angel would have come to his beckoning call and wiped out humanity? But it is self-control. He knew that if he did that, there'd be no hope for the redemption of humanity. He was perfect in his self-control, in the way he spoke, in the way he acted, in the way he thought, in what he did. But Jesus was perfect in his endurance. He endured so much for you and me. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the Father. You know what his joy was? His joy was to please his Father above all things. His joy was you. He endured the most excruciating pain that you and I can't even imagine for you and for me. Then the writer of Hebrews goes on and says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He did that for you. He didn't give up. And he's saying, you don't give up. I know life is tough. I know life is hard. I know that there are difficulties. I know there will be sickness. There will be illness. There will be death. There will be disappointment. There will be depression. There will be anxiety. But don't give up. You press through because within you is the Holy Spirit of God. You press through because within you is the Word of God. You press through. Because before you is the example that I've set before you as I've hung on that cross. You don't give up. Supply your faith with a steadfastness that will not quit until your last breath.